You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Charting. What should be in and what should be out. Charting do's and don'ts. Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today, Jim Bream, an attorney with the offices of Query and Harrow. Jim concentrates on the defense of hospitals, managed care organizations, and physicians in professional liability programs. He has handled cases in the trial and appellate courts and is a featured speaker and guest lecturer on various healthcare and medical legal issues. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Larry. You know, we've been talking about what to chart, what not to chart, how to chart, who should chart. Let's talk about documentation. What exactly needs to be documented? Let's do that. Let's start with some basics. Obviously, you want to have the patient's complaint. You want to have recorded some form of history. You want to record observations that are being made on the patient, as well as physical findings. You want to make sure that each encounter has an assessment and a plan and treatment. Now, not every encounter needs to be a detailed history and physical. Certainly, we appreciate the concept of the focused visit. But even within the focused visit, there needs to be a basic outline of the type of information that is recorded on the medical record. When I started in practice, I worked with an old-timer, and his charting system was a little box that had little white cards in it, and the visit would have cough, amoxicillin, and that was it. He never got sued. What changed? What happened? Well, certainly we've become a bit more of a litigious society, but one could also look at that and say that he was lucky, and he was lucky he didn't have the patient population, perhaps, that had a bad outcome or had that cough that was chronic in nature, and he couldn't document that although it was chronic in nature, the patient had a perfectly benign explanation for it so that he didn't have to work it up for some type of intrapulmonary pathology. All right, so let's dig into the chart a little more. Let's talk about complaint and history and when to chart more detail. Great. Let's take a clinic visit, for example. How about the patient who comes in and complains of chest pain? Like your old-timer physician, is the practitioner documenting simply chest pain, a rather amorphous description of a potentially very dangerous condition, or are you taking the time to document the quality, duration, and degree of that chest pain? Does the patient have a history of chest pain? Certainly, there is a big difference, isn't there, if I come into your office and I say, Dr. Caskell, I have a complaint of chest pain, and you look at me and I have an arrow sticking into the right side of my chest, versus I have a complaint of chest pain, it feels like an elephant is sitting on my chest, and by the way, I have a family history of heart attacks at an early age, I have high cholesterol, I have hypertension, and I'm feeling diaphoretic. I absolutely agree. I mean, first of all, anytime chest pain is mentioned, all flags and brainwaves have to be activated because it can always be something catastrophic and can always lead to death. So, yes, a, a complaint of chest pain has to be elaborated fully and explored fully. And I think even an EKG needs to be done all the time, anytime you mention chest pain, because the one time you don't do that EKG is going to be the one time that something bad happens. And unfortunately, there's a lot of unnecessary EKGs ordered, but 
Again, we live in this litigious society. Let's move on to another complaint. Sure. How about the patient who comes in and complains that she feels a lump in her breast tissue? Well, are we documenting the onset of that lump? Was it felt in under certain circumstances, such as after a hot shower? Is it a movable lump? Is it fixed? Is it a hard mass or a soft mass? How long has it been present? These are all things that are essential to document, not only for establishing a differential diagnosis and a plan, but what about with respect to the continuity of care the next time the patient returns to the clinic? Right. If it's soft one time and then the next time it comes in, it's hard. Obviously, that's important. But any breast lump is going to, once again, get a mammogram ordered immediately, no matter what. So let's say you just say there is a lump. I'm going to get a mammogram and find out what that lump is. So my history may not be as complicated with that breast lump as you're saying it should be. Well, for instance, you may want to record, is the lump something that's present only with menstrual periods, or is it something that varies within the menstrual cycle? These all can be factors that are key for arriving at an appropriate plan of treatment. You're listening to Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm with Jim Bream, attorney and featured speaker on various healthcare and medical legal issues. We're talking about the chart, what to chart, what not to chart. Jim, we're still talking about charting the complaint and history. Can you give me another example of something that should be attended to? Two great additional examples, abdominal pain and headache. Let's take abdominal pain first. Like chest pain, abdominal pain is a fairly vague complaint. Are we talking about an appendicitis? Is it right lower quadrant? Is it over McBurney's point? Or are we talking about gastroenteritis? Is this somebody with a history of ulcers? Is it epigastric in nature? Or is there some reason to suspect, perhaps in your diabetic patient, that this is referred myocardial pain? Well, are there times, Jim, that sometimes writing more gets you into trouble versus writing less? I think we're looking there in terms of what it is that you're writing. If your charting is appropriate, talking about the patient's medical condition, the nature of the complaint, the symptoms, the history, no, writing more will not get you into trouble. You know, the other day I had a, a woman come in complaining of a headache, and it was a new headache, and she was not a headachey person. She had no history of migraines. She said she was under no stress. Her physical exam was normal, and yet she had this new headache in a 43-year-old woman. I was taught that new headaches need to be investigated more fully. So I said, listen, you need a CAT scan. I cannot tell you for sure what is causing your headache. And she said, well, you know, can't we just wait a few days and see if it goes away? I said, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to bet your life and my life on that. I think you should get the CAT scan. And she hemmed and hawed. And, uh, you know, I had to convince her to do something that could potentially save her life. The upside was she had her CAT scan the next morning because I couldn't get her in that evening. And it was totally normal. She's fine now. So it was a both a diagnostic and a therapeutic CAT scan. Great. Now, see, there's a great example of taking the patient's complaint recognizing the significance of it and following up appropriately. We're not telling everybody to get a CAT scan on every patient who complains of a headache. But from a charting perspective, both for patient care 
as well as for protection in litigation. If you document that the patient has a new onset headache, then a CAT scan is appropriate. If, on the other hand, that same patient came to you and said, as a new patient, I have a headache, I've had them since I was 10, this is the exact same type, it's the kind that's been diagnosed by all of my past physicians as a migraine, then if you've documented that, you have good reason as to why you didn't order the CT scan. So I'm, in a sense, covered, yet if something was to still happen, I can still get sued, even though I documented perfectly and everything made sense. Turns out this person's headache turned out to be an AV malformation, and uh, they died a week later. I'm still going to get sued even though I documented everything perfectly. Well, look, the patient can still go and see an attorney, but if you have good documentation, the plaintiff's attorney is less likely to take the case if the documentation builds an appropriate defense, even if they do file a lawsuit for some reason and the case goes into litigation. I, as a defense attorney, have a much better chance of defending you on the record based upon what is documented. It's a lot easier to defend you if you have your rationale, your history, your complaints, your workup in the chart versus six years later, you're coming into the jury room and saying in front of 12 of your peers who are judging you, oh, I remember, I didn't document, but I remember this is what happened. So in your experience, can you give odds to the doctor or some sort of guarantee if I come to you and and I have perfect documentation, beautiful documentation. Can you say, Dr. Kaskill, that it is very unlikely that you are going to be found guilty, and I can almost guarantee that you'll be acquitted or that this case will be dismissed with 99% accuracy? I'm a great lawyer. I'm a great defense lawyer, and that's why I don't give odds, because ultimately, if the case goes to a jury trial, juries are unpredictable. But... I can say that if we're going to present a rational defense and we have good medical charting, that is one of the best tools that a defense attorney can be gifted with in defending any type of case. How often do you actually go to trial, or do you settle most of the time before trial? I think the statistics when one looks at cases that go into litigation is that out of 100 cases, you may be down to somewhere around 10% that will reach the trial stage. And of those 10%, maybe another 5% will ultimately go through the entirety of the trial process. Cases can be dismissed along the way. They can be settled for a variety of different reasons. Ideally, we'd like to keep physicians practicing medicine. I think that all lawyers would like to see health care provided on a continuous basis so that we're not spending the physician's time taken up in a courtroom. I'm going to throw something out of left field here, Jim. What if every doctor in this country said, I am no longer going to carry malpractice? What would happen? What would happen to the system? We're not getting malpractice insurance. Go ahead and sue me. There's nothing you're going to get. I got to think that would bring prices down dramatically and help the system. I mean, I, I think it would put a lot of lawyers out of work, but has anyone ever looked at that potential scenario? Crane's Chicago business about two years ago had a picture of a family practitioner out uh, sitting in a tree out on a limb. And I think the title was Out on a Limb, and this was a physician who had made the decision to go bare and not carry insurance anymore. I don't believe that that would 
create a stop gap in the litigation system. What's going to happen is you'll see even more of an existing shift in responsibility to the healthcare institution and or to the HMO or managed care organization so that if physicians all decided to go bare, the plaintiff's bar would still have recourse against other aspects of the healthcare industry. And you'd see hospitals and managed care organizations taking on a greater burden and perhaps an unfair burden. Jim, thanks for coming on the show again and helping us clear up some of our bad charting skills. Uh, I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.